Well, it's good to be with you all tonight, and I am excited about our topic. Tonight is a little bit of a different night. So tonight we have a very special topic, and I have to tell you, friends, that we actually don't have a handout for tonight because it's an extra topic that I've added just special for you. What do you say? <clears throat> Amen. And we've got some exciting things coming, and so I can't wait to get into it. Um, I want to also, before we begin, also welcome our online audience. Again, thank you guys for joining. We have people watching from many different parts of the United States and even people from other countries. So we welcome you guys for, for, for uh, watching. We thank you for watching and we welcome you here tonight as well. Our subject tonight, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A subject that I know some of you have been waiting for. Tonight we're going to look at Revelation chapter 6, and I guarantee there's going to be some surprises in there for you. Now we're going to do something a little different. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to do it very carefully. But instead of looking at the small details, we're going to fly over the whole chapter because I want you to see how the Bible is structured, Bible prophecy is structured, okay? Now Revelation chapter 6 is a chapter that not many people study anymore. But there are important keys in this passage that pave the way to understanding the rest of the book. <clears throat> so I want you to see the whole thing. All right? I know that tonight we're probably going to raise as many questions as we answer. All right? So I'm going to ask you to be patient. Will you guys be patient with me? I only heard three people. Will you be patient with me, Pastor? Renika, thank you so much. You're going to be patient. All right, because as we go into the subjects, more answers are going to come. But I thank you that you guys are patient. Even if you weren't patient, I would still present. But thank you. We're going to move quick, all right? But before we get into it, as always, what do we need to do, friends? We need to pray and ask God's Spirit to be with us. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing each one of us here tonight. Lord, I thank you for your holy word that gives us so much encouragement for the future. And Lord, as we've studied the past couple of meetings, we've seen the importance of Bible prophecy. Thank you, Lord, that the center of all of it is Jesus. And my prayer tonight is that he would be lifted up. Please hide me behind the cross, Lord. Forgive me of my sins. And may Jesus be the one that everybody sees tonight. I thank you so much for hearing this prayer. We ask for your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start by going to the very beginning of the book of Revelation and looking at a text we've already seen in this series. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. We looked at this last night. Remember this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must what? Shortly take place, come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. <clears throat> now this is a very important concept, and I know we looked at this last night, but many modern readers miss this. In the book of Revelation, God is showing John things that are going to happen in the future. But... According to this verse, when are those future events going to start taking place? Shortly. Now this is a really important point. Because the prophecies of Revelation were already being fulfilled when? In John's time. Do you follow? And so this book is not just about our future. It was about John's future. Revelation isn't just about the last few years of Earth's history. It's about the whole expanse of time from John's day all the way to the second coming of Christ. The fulfillment began almost 2,000 years ago when John wrote the book, and it continues until the end of time. That's the way that most of Daniel and Revelation are structured. The predictions are filled historically. More often than not, the fulfillment of prophecy begins in the day of the prophet, continues down through time all the way to the second coming of Christ. So for example, when we saw the statue, remember the statue, the head of represented what? 
So it began in the time in which Nebuchadnezzar received the dream, right? And it continued all the way until when? Until when Jesus comes. So we're still in the midst of that prophecy, but it began in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and continues all the way until Jesus comes. So that means that some of Revelation has already happened, right? In fact, we already have nearly 2,000 years of fulfillment under our belt. And maybe one of the clearest places you can see this principle at work is the prophecy of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, some of you might get a little frustrated with me over the next three minutes. I hope not, because I don't like when people are frustrated at me. (laughs) But we're going to skip through chapters 2 and 3 in about two minutes. Are you frustrated? I hope not, okay? We're going to go fast. But I just want to do a quick overview to show you the structure of this prophecy. Are you ready? Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Okay. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters addressed to how many churches? Seven churches. Good. You guys are with me. A plus. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, and Laodicea. These were real cities in Asia Minor, modern day. Anybody know where that is today? Turkey, Turkey. And the seven letters are addressed to seven literal Christian churches that lived in those cities. Now, this is a picture from Ephesus. And I actually went to this city a number of years ago, almost 20 years ago. Mercy, I'm getting old, Pastor. Mercy, mercy. I went to Ephesus on a tour of the seven churches in Turkey, and it was powerful. We went to the sites where all of those cities were and the churches were. This is, this is Ephesus, and it's a beautiful place if you ever get to see it. Of course, we know that the Apostle John was there, and we know that the Apostle Paul also went there. But over the centuries, serious Bible students have noticed something really amazing about these seven churches. The seven letters also seem to describe the seven, the history, rather, the seven letters describe the entire history of Christianity from the first century to the second coming. And the descriptions are absolutely perfect. So, for example, let me tell you what. You've got Ephesus, right? That's the first one, which describes the early apostolic church of the first century a desirable, a pure church. Then second, you've got Smyrna, which is the crushed or persecuted church, and it represents the Christians who lived through the persecutions of the Roman Empire. The word Smyrna is actually related to the word myrrh. Have any of you heard of myrrh? Remember, those were one, that was one of the three gifts brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is actually a sweet-smelling smelling spice that only gets its smell after it's crushed. So the Smyrna Christians represents those who are crushed under the persecution of the Roman Empire. Then church number three, the Pergamos. Pergamos, a church that begins to fragment and become weaker because many years have gone by and people begin to compromise the original teachings of Christ. Then comes Thyatira, a period of history when Christians really start to misbehave. Most students of the Bible call this period the Dark Ages, a time when Christian, Christians stopped living the faith by and large. It was not biblical. They began to depart from the pure teachings of the Bible. And fifth, comes Sardis, a period of history when Christians start to open their Bibles again and return to the plain teachings of Scripture. This roughly begins in the 1500s during the Reformation when you suddenly see Christian scholars from every conceivable background calling people back to the Word of God. Number six is Philadelphia, a church that launches a global missionary movement and begins to share Jesus with the whole world. And at the same time, during the first and second Great Awakenings, they begin to teach that Jesus is coming soon. The name Philadelphia, does anybody know what that means? Brotherly love, all right. And that's a pretty good description of the state of Christianity as we move into the 1800s. But finally, friends, comes Laodicea. The unfortunate description of last day Christianity. A time when people will profess to be godly, but deny the real power of the Christian faith. 
This is the moment we are living in right now. And the Bible describes it as lukewarm Christianity. How many of you can see that as we look around at the Christian world today? Most Christians, even as we looked at that survey yesterday about those that didn't fully understand the truths of the Bible, most Christians are not really on fire. It's just part of a routine. It's something they do. Now what's amazing about these seven churches is the fact that most Christians agree on what they represent. Yes, they were real literal churches in the first century, and the messages absolutely did apply to them, but these churches also describe the state of Christianity as a whole over the past 2,000 years. Now Christians disagree on many things in Bible prophecy, we know this, right? But on these two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, there is widespread agreement these are seven churches showing the complete span of Christian history. Now, as we look further, as we look at that number seven, you remember we talked about it in the Q&A just a moment ago. It's also very important to remember that in Bible prophecy, seven is the number of what? What do we say it was? Completion or perfection, right? It's considered God's number. He created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day, which made a perfect week and it symbolized a perfect creation. So you've got seven churches which represent the complete story of church history. There are seven seals in Revelation, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven plagues. Seven is the number of completeness and perfection and it's the number of God. So this is a very important principle I want you guys to remember as we continue to study prophecy. Another principle you're going to need is that Bible prophecy often repeats itself and expands on what you've already studied. So this is something you're going to notice when we get into Daniel chapter 8. It repeats the same history that we saw in Daniel chapter 2, but from a slightly different perspective. So we call it repetition and expansion. All right, can you guys say that with me, please? Repetition and expansion. If you're a teacher, you understand what that's like. Sometimes you have to teach things over and over in different ways to help people understand. God is a good teacher. And when you look at those patterns in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, suddenly it becomes clear. And as we go through the meetings in the, few, in the next few days, you're going to see more clearly how that pattern plays out. So... Tonight, we're going to see how Revelation 6 works. It covers the same territory, actually, as the seven churches. But it shows us the same history from a different perspective. So are you guys ready to dive in to Revelation 6? Yes or no? Who's ready? Are you ready on this side? Amen. Okay, so let's go. Here we go. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, last night, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5. We followed John into the throne room of heaven. Remember, it was an incredible scene. God was on the throne, with a, and there was a scroll or a book in his hand. And it was a very important book because the angels wanted it to be opened. But if you remember, they couldn't find anyone who could open the book. Not one person was worthy. But then, praise God, the lamb appears. The slain lamb. And he is worthy. Who was that lamb, friends? It was Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who was worthy. So now tonight in Revelation chapter 6, the same lamb takes the scroll and begins to open the seals one by one. And as he opens the seals, he reveals what is possible for his people because of what he has done on the cross. Amen? He's the only one who's worthy. Now some of you say, well, what does that mean opening with seals? Let me just paint a quick picture. Back in the old times, they didn't have books, right? Like us, they didn't have books. Now, when we seal a book, we put plastic on it. When you get your Andrew Study Bible, it's got plastic on it, right? Well, in the old days, they would seal important messages by putting wax. And they would roll, it would be a, a scroll, right? And so they would wax a seal shut. And, they, and so the picture here is that you've got a scroll with seven seals that seal this scroll. And so the Lamb, Jesus, is now going to undo each of those seals so that we can understand what is in the scroll. Now I'm going to warn you, as, he, as Jesus opens the seals, 
he's going to show us a very honest picture of the future. And that includes a very honest assessment of the Christian church. He's going to predict our very best moments, and unfortunately, he's going to also predict some of our worst moments. But honestly, you know what? I wouldn't want it any other way, would you? I love the fact that God is open and honest. He doesn't sugarcoat the situation. He tells us the truth. You know, one of the most, actually, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but one of the most convincing proofs for me that the Bible is true. You know, this is God's book, right? This represents God. Now, if you were trying to represent yourself and, and you know, convince people to believe in you, wouldn't you want to put only good things about those who followed you? Your propaganda would be all positive. That's what politicians do, right? They all say positive things. The Bible is the unvarnished truth. God tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly. He tells us, you know, we know about the saints that have followed him perfectly, like Daniel and so many people, but we also know about those followers of God that have failed, like David, who committed adultery, like Moses, who killed a man. The Bible is, 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 is true. And so, God tells us the whole story, friends, both the happy parts and the parts where we know people went astray. But it means we can trust Him. Amen? Do you think we can trust the Bible? Absolutely, friends. And so, God is going to show us a very accurate picture of the church. He's going to show us both sides, when the church is getting it right and when the church is getting it wrong. So here we go, starting with Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. The Bible says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice, like thunder, Come and see. Now I want you to notice the invitation. God says, Come and see. That's why the book is called Revelation. God is not afraid to have you look. It's not a mystery. It's an unveiling. The book, actually the word apocalypsis, you've heard of apocalypse. That was another word for the book of Revelation, apocalypsos. It means uncovering, actually. God is eager to show us the reality of history. Verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to what? And to conquer. So you've got a man riding a white horse, and he's busy conquering something. What is he conquering, and why is the horse white? Well, if you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, you'll find the color white all over the place, right? In chapter 1, you've got Jesus' hair, which is... Oh, let's go back one slide, guys. Sorry about that. One slide... In chapter 1, Jesus' hair is white as wool. In chapter 2, the faithful are promised a white stone. In chapter 3, the faithful are wearing white garments. All right. Then in chapter 4, the elders in heaven are dressed in white. In chapter 6, the martyrs are given white robes. In chapter 7, a huge, numberless crowd is dressed in white. In chapter 14, Jesus returns on a white cloud. In chapter 19, Jesus is on a white horse. In chapter 20, God is seated on a white throne. Okay? It's a symbol you find all throughout Revelation. So what does it mean? Well, I want you to remember that John borrows roughly two-thirds of his language from the rest of the Bible. And so let's see how the color white is used in other places of the Bible. Let's look at the book of Isaiah. You've probably seen this verse before. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, when I, I was sharing this with a, a friend of mine who was from Botswana when we were in seminary together, and he said to me, Pastor, he said, you know, in Botswana, because we don't have snow, we make a little translation difference. We say white as milk. Because <laughs> they don't understand snow. But it's the same point, right? It's still white. So I want you to know, 
Scarlet or red is the color of blood. It's the color of death. It's the color of sin or impurity. But white is the color of forgiveness, of purity. It's the color of holiness. That's why to this day, a bride still wears a white dress. Now, wedding dresses are special. How many of you who are married still have your wedding dress, just out of curiosity? I see some, I see some hands. All right, all right. How many of you threw it away? No, you don't have to put your hands up. Now, I just have to tell you a quick, this is just a quick diversion story. So, um, forgive me, but when I was in college, I was with a couple friends of mine, and um, these two girls, they, they were funny. We were driving, and we, we happened to stop at a Goodwill, and they just decided to start trying on wedding dresses. And I don't know what we were, you know, we were probably, I don't know, 20, 21 years old, and whatever. And so these girls were trying to wedding, and these were like wedding dresses from like the 1960s, okay? Like they had the big, puffy shoulder, do you, I see some naughty, did they used to have some wedding dresses that were pretty out there? <laughs> but you know, we laughed as they were trying on these different dresses. And uh, we, we took pictures, and we still laugh about it to this day when we talk about it. But I'll tell you what, those wedding dresses, even though they were really kind of ugly in some ways, <laughs> they were still beautiful because they were white, and they represented purity. And so, friends, that's why in Revelation chapter 12, when you see a woman dressed in white, it's a symbol of God's perfect, forgiven church. We're going to study that more in a future night. We're going to find out why a woman symbolizes God's church. But I'll just give you a quick, quick snippet, and that is all throughout the Bible, God's people are described as the bride of Christ. In Ezekiel 16, God describes Israel as his bride. In Jeremiah 6, verse 2, the Bible says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. A pure woman dressed in white is the pure church of God. And of course, a woman dressed in scarlet would be the impure church of God. White is the color of forgiveness and purity, and that's why the first horse is white. So this is a picture of the early apostolic church, uh, the church of the first century. The fire of the gospel message was alive in their hearts. The church was pure. These were the people who had actually talked to Jesus. They knew the disciples, and they knew the gospel message firsthand. They knew their mission. They knew their purpose and their calling. They were so passionate about the gospel that they went to the uttermost parts of the earth, and they did it even without email or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Amen. <laughs> they didn't have YouTube. <laughs> they did it on foot, and they were successful. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was their power. Amen? That's why Paul could say, talking about the gospel, that it had already been preached to every creature under heaven. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Imagine, the whole Roman Empire reached in one lifetime. The devil had already failed to conquer Jesus at the cross. Revelation 12 tells us that because Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven. But the devil then turned his wrath on the Christian church. And he tried to stop them from teaching the truth. He created all kinds of trouble for the church and eventually another horse rides onto the scene. Revelation chapter 6 Verse 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to, pick, to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given him a great sword. So white is the color of purity, but red is the color of sin and bloodshed. Now again, these are just... Symbols in the Bible, right? The Bible predicted that peace would be taken from the earth, and that is exactly what happened. The wrath of the pagan empire, the pagan Roman empire, suddenly fell on the Christians. And the Romans grew to hate the followers of Jesus. Our history books are full of stories of what the Romans did. Now this next picture is going to break your heart. Imagine a huge portion of the city of Rome at one, at one time was burned to the ground 
Many historians think, if you remember this story maybe from high school history class, they think that Nero actually decided to burn it down himself because he wanted to make room for his building projects. But who did he blame? He blamed the Christians. He had them thrown into the arena, torn apart by wild beasts, men, women, and children. According to Roman history, on one occasion, he actually had Christians sewn into animal skins and he tossed them out in front of wild dogs who ripped them to shreds. On another occasion, he dipped Christians in tar, crucified them, and then lit them on fire so they could be his nightlights in the circus. Terrible evils were committed during those years. Many people gave their lives because they would not compromise the truth. They stood faithful to their last breath. Peter was crucified upside down. John the Revelator, as we talked about yesterday, was dipped in boiling oil. It was a horrible time to be a Christian because the Roman Empire hated the church. But it's also from that historical period that we find some of the most remarkable stories of faith. Maybe you've heard of this man. How many of you have heard of Polycarp? Polycarp, okay, not many hands. Well, you're going to be blessed to hear about this guy. The Bishop of Smyrna, who was actually a disciple of John, at one point, the authorities took him to be burned alive because he refused to acknowledge the Roman emperor as God. There was a Roman official present at his execution, and he just couldn't understand why Polycarp wouldn't just give in. And he said, old man, why do you want to die like this? Just renounce Christ. Just do it real quick right now and then go on and live your life. What's the point of going through this suffering? But the old man stood up and he said these words that have now echoed through history. 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Praise God for Polycarp's faith. You see, once you know Jesus, you're really not afraid of much, amen? You already know the future. You understand that God's going to win, and He's ultimately going to take care of everything. Friends, I just want to say right now, that's why no matter what you're facing tonight in your life, no matter what fear you may have, you may be afraid of COVID. All of us are afraid of something. You may be afraid of all kinds of different things that may happen. But you know what, friends? And I understand we don't have to be afraid as we put our trust in Jesus. Because like Polycarp, even if we lose our lives here, we know that our life forever is secure in heaven. Amen? Even if you die, you're going to be okay, friends. Isn't that good news? Isn't that freeing news? Praise God. And the authorities lit the fire, and Polycarp died. I believe we're going to see him again. Amen. It was the period of the red horse. Peace was taken from the earth and the bloodshed was unbelievable. But you and I should understand this. Those people were willing to die that you and I would have a chance to read this book. Do you realize how valuable this book is, friends? Now, you know, I've heard, you've heard me say, oh, the Andrew Study Bible is worth whatever amount of dollars. No, that's not the point. People died for this book. This is the most valuable thing you could ever own, friends. And how many of these are sitting on a shelf, dusty and unused? I pray that we will read our Bibles more. In 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, it is said that every delegate had been maimed by persecution. Some were missing eyes or hands or feet. Some were covered with scars. Every last one of them. It was the bloodiest, one of the bloodiest periods in history, but persecution failed to conquer Christianity because the love of God will always be stronger than the devil. And that's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness, friends. One of them woos us, calling us with love. The other one uses force and deception. And in the end, force always loses. The authorities tried to stamp out the Christian church, but they couldn't extinguish the light of the gospel. 
an early church father by the name of Tertullian pointed out that the harder Romans tried to wipe out the church, the faster the message of Jesus spread. He wrote these famous words, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. He compared the persecution to mowing grass. You can cut it down, but it comes back thicker and stronger. Every time you kill one Christian, 20 more will take his place. The gospel is undefeatable. Praise God. But the big question is why? Why did the Roman Empire hate the Christian church so much? It wasn't like the Romans were intolerant of other religions. I mean, in the Roman Empire, you could practice any religion you wanted, except for Christianity. Why is that? Well, it's because, in a nutshell, every other religion was willing to add Caesar as one of its gods. But the Christians would not. They couldn't acknowledge Caesar as God because they worshipped only one god. And God said, you shall have no other gods. We'll talk about that when we talk about the Ten Commandments. So Christians kind of stood out like a sore thumb. Now, in truth, no one really actually, not many people of Romans, actually believed that Caesar was God, especially the people that grew up with him. But the Caesar was considered the embodiment of the empire. He was a potent symbol of national unity. So you could do and believe what you wanted, but the Romans would not tolerate anything that seemed to compromise the empire. And so even if you didn't actually believe that the Caesar was God, you still had to offer some incense here and there to prove that you were loyal to Caesar. But the Christians would not compromise on any point. They were not willing to compromise that there was another God. And they stood faithful. Emperor Diocletian actually issued a certificate to prove that you had offered this incense. There was only one group that was exempt. It was the Jews. And they were exempt because way back when they had helped Julius Caesar and he gave them privileges. They were considered a national religion. And at first, the Christians had the same exemption. But because... After a while, it became obvious that they weren't part of the Jewish religion. They no longer had that exemption, and it created a problem. Now, the Christians were also not comfortable with many things that the Romans did. For example, their entertainment. The Romans would condemn men forced to fight for the amusement of the crowd and occasionally when a play called for a death sentence, they would actually take a condemned criminal from the jail and put him out onto the play and he would be killed in front of these people. Christians couldn't stand that. Not only did they have a different religion, but they had a different culture. They were counter-cultural. They were different. So they stuck out like a sore thumb. Friends, let me ask you a question. If we stand for the truth today, If we do the right thing today, do we stand out as a sore thumb in society? What do you think? Is the world moving more and more towards away from Bible principles? I'm not going to cite specific examples, but I can think of many of them, of them tonight. It's not popular to believe in the truths of the Bible. Friends, we need to base our lives on God's Word like the early Christians. Amen? We need to be faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. It was the period of the red horse, and it came to a head between the years 303 and 313 A.D. when the emperor Diocletian was pressured to eliminate the Christian faith. There was a fire in his palace, and the Christians got blamed, so Diocletian had them all dismissed from public office. He kicked them out of the government, and he removed them from the army because he couldn't be sure if they would be loyal. And for ten years, there was unbelievable persecution. But it didn't last forever. Eventually, the red horse also rides off the scene. So now let's go to the next seal, the third seal. Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This rider, the rider on this horse, has scales, which means he's measuring something. What is he measuring, friends? Now, to be honest, this is one of the passages in the Bible that really makes me a little uneasy because God is about to reveal the truth of our Christian history. Listen to the rest of this. 
and I heard a voice in the midst. Oh, sorry, I, I think my I missed a slide here, guys. Sorry about that. So this verse. Let me actually. Sorry. Let me go to the. Let me go to it from the Bible because I think I missed a slide. Apologies for that. Revelation chapter six and verse five and six. Old fashioned, right? Amen. You with me? Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. That's what we missed. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So there you have the full picture there of this third horse. The writer moves us to the next period of Earth's history, and it's a remarkable story. In the year 312 A.D., something happens just outside the city of Rome. The emperor Diocletian has divided the empire into two halves, east and west. And in each half, he had two rulers, a senior ruler called the Augustus and a junior ruler called the Caesar. So you had four total rulers. Historians call it the Tetrarchy, okay? I know this is a lot of history, but we'll get through it quickly. Diocletian retired... He actually retired in 305 A.D. And the four rulers, what do you think happened? They started to fight for control, right? And before long, there was a fifth ruler in the city of Rome, a guy by the name of Maxentius. And he was angry because he was passed over by Diocletian for a promotion. So, of course, he manages to try to convince people, and he convinces the Roman Senate to crown him the emperor. And so, Maxentius is now in charge of Rome. But then there's another guy, and you might have heard of his name, by the name of Constantine, who shows up to deal with Maxentius. Now inside the city of Rome, everybody's getting nervous because they're saying, hey, Constantine is coming, Constantine is coming. And Maxentius knew that Constantine was a strong warrior, and he knew he couldn't beat him in a fight. So he hides inside the city, knowing that Constantine's soldiers would not want to attack the mother city, the eternal city, Rome. And to make people feel more secure, he decides to throw a big party. So he throws a chariot race, and he invites everybody in the city to come to this chariot race. But as soon as the race was over, someone shouted, Hey, Maxentius! Are you really afraid to go out and fight Constantine? Well, before long, someone else shouted the same thing. And the whole crowd started chanting. It went viral. And now Maxentius had no choice. He had to go out and fight. So he went to the Roman soothsayers and he asked the old, he asked them, he said, are there any Roman prophecies that can give me some, some hope? Are there any predictions? And they went and they checked their soothsayer books and they said, there's a, they said, they said, Maxentius, there's a prophecy that says tomorrow the enemy of Rome will die. Whew, he says. That was good news because in his mind, Constantine was the enemy of Rome. Well, outside the city, somebody told Constantine that Maxentius had a sign that he would be the winner. And old prophecy guaranteed it. Guaranteed it. And sure enough, Constantine's soldiers got worried because they were about to attack the eternal city, Rome. But Constantine decided to come up with his own sign to encourage his soldiers. There was an ancient pagan symbol called a Cairo. What did, it call, what did they call it? Cairo. Now, that's not the city of Cairo. That's Cairo, okay? It's the Greek letters, Chi, which is a C-H, but it looks like an X, and Rho, which is actually an R, but it looks more like a P. These are the first two letters in the word Christ. So a lot of people assume that Constantine was using a Christian symbol. Now, I'll show it to you here. It'll be on the screen if we can... There it is. Okay, you see the X and the P, right? Cairo. So Constantine comes up with this sign. But it's actually an ancient pagan symbol. Okay? It's actually an ancient pagan symbol. It's the word, first two letters of a word, crestus, which is also the word for good luck or victory. It's an ancient pagan symbol that predates Christianity. So Constantine has his men paint this symbol on their shields so that they would have a sign of victory. And on the next day, October 28, the armies clashed at the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And to make a long story short, Constantine wins. Maxentius falls off his horse and drowns in the river and dies. 
And when Constantine gets inside the city of Rome, he does something very unusual. He doesn't go to the top of Capitoline Hill and sacrifice to the god Jupiter like most of the Roman emperors had always done. He actually doesn't do that, we think, because his mother was a Christian. And 12 years later, as Constantine is celebrating his empire, he suddenly begins to change and embellish the story. He tells a church historian by the name of Eusebius that he actually saw the Cairo in the sky and he heard a voice telling him, go conquer in this sign. In other words, more than a decade later, he said the Christian God told him to go conquer Rome in the sign of the cross. He was nominally accepting the Christian faith. Even though he continued to kill his family members and refused to get baptized until his deathbed. But, at least on the surface, he said he was a Christian. And he even gives the Lateran Palace as a gift to the Bishop of Rome. And he builds a church in honor of Peter at the Vatican Mountain, the original St. Peter's Basilica, the foundation of which is under the actual St. Peter's Basilica today. And from that point on, the persecution is over. Because Constantine officially ends it with the Edict of Milan. And Rome becomes a Christian empire. Constantine may not have converted himself, but he absolutely favored the Christian religion. It became popular, and for the first time, people began joining the church to be popular, to gain favor with the emperor. If you wanted to climb the social ladder, what did you do? You became a Christian. Now, was that a good thing or a bad thing for the church? What do you think? Well, some of you might say, well, it's good because there wasn't persecution. But think about it, friends. It's bad because people were coming in that weren't really converted. There's even an old story that Constantine decided to make his whole army Christian, so how did he do it? He, just, he told him to march through the Tiber River. He said, you march through the river, and as you march through, you'll be baptized. Now, that's not a way to baptize people, amen? What do you get when you march a thousand pagans through the river, Pastor Ashwin? You get wet pagans. You don't get Christians. The thing about Christianity, friends, you can't make the decision for somebody else. You have to choose Jesus for yourself. Amen? Now, the story might be, we're not sure if it's totally true, but it does illustrate the complete reversal of Rome's attitude. Christianity was now the favored religion. And that led to problems because now you have an uncomfortable mix of people in the church. Some were sincere Christians, and some were just there for the advantages. I could stay on that one for a moment. The church became a blended institution. And some of the passion that made the early church conquer the world began to disappear. And because Christians got comfortable, they didn't have to stand for anything anymore. It became easy to be a Christian. But then as the years went by, something terrible started to happen. Those who were part of the new, comfortable Christianity were real still, they were still pagans at heart. They started to resent the people who were practicing biblical Christianity. They pushed them to the margins of the church. And eventually, if you differed with the empire's official version of Christianity, a politicized version, it led to huge problems. And at this point in history, the church stopped changing the world, and the world started changing the church. When Rome stopped persecuting Christians, Christians eventually started persecuting each other. We actually started killing each other over differences of opinion. Let me ask you a question. Where did we learn that? Did we get it from Jesus? What do you say? No, of course not. Can you see, Jesus didn't believe in torture. We didn't learn it from the Bible. We learned it from the Romans. We brought Roman-style politics right through the doors of the church, and we did it even though God warned us in more than one prophecy that it was going to happen. And as the years went by, we started doing something else that is still happening to this day. I'm embarrassed to say that it's even happening right here in North America. We started seeing the gospel, instead of preaching it, selling it. <laughs> the Bible said that this writer would have something for sale. What was he selling? Remember? Remember? He was selling barley, wheat, food. And what is food? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
I am the living water. I have food to eat of which you do not know. In the Bible, food is the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus. You and I started to sell religion. Even though the gospel is free and Jesus paid for your salvation, people started to sell it. And that's still going on to this day. Just turn on your TV. Listen to some of those TV preachers. Send in your money. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving money to God's cause. Amen? Praise the Lord for tithes and offerings. Amen. But you can't sell the gospel, friends. Some people, many preachers, are still trying to earn a buck on the gospel of Christ. And I'm ashamed to say it when I see preachers jetting around in Learjets and living in million-dollar mansions. Is that what Jesus would do? I don't think so, friends. Jesus is not for sale. The gospel is free because Christ's grace is free. Amen. And of course, churches have to pay the bills. And of course, you can't just give everything away. But Christians have no business getting rich on the gospel. As the Christian church started lurching toward the dark ages, we began to cut off access to the Bible. A measure of wheat is barely enough to even stay alive. You couldn't even feed a family with it. And a denarius? Well, it's like a penny. And back then, a penny was, it was a whole day's pay. So in other words, a day's wages for a starvation diet. That's our church after we begin to compromise, friends. But that wasn't the last horse. There's one more horse. Verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a what, everyone? A pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. The black horse was bad news. But the pale horse is worse. Pale is the color of death. Pale is the color you get when the lifeblood drains out of the body. And as the church moved into the dark ages, that's exactly what happened. People stopped reading the Bible. They lost track of the message. The mission of the church came to a grinding halt. We actually replaced missions with wars. Our passion for Christ became extinct. It was a terrible time. And if you've read European history, you'll know what I'm talking about. Of course, there were a few faithful Christians. People who stayed true to the faith, even in the darkest moments of those years. One of those groups were the Waldensians. How many, how many of you have ever heard of the Waldensians? Now this group of faithful Christians lived in the mountains of Europe. They copied Scripture by hand. They faithfully copied word by word Scripture. They would hide it in their cloak and go into the towns and villages to share with everyone they met the words of Christ. They were faithful unto death. People like the Waldenses represent the purity of true believers even in an age of compromise. Now friends, I know we're getting to the end here, but I want to show you, I want to break from my sermon just for a moment to show you a video about the Waldensians. This is from a series called Lineage. And some of you may have heard of Lineage. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to check it out. It's a powerful series on church history as it relates to the last number of centuries and really all the way back to the time of Christ. And so right now I want you to watch with me this short clip about the Waldensians from the Lineage series done by my good friend, Pastor Adam Ramden. Whilst the Celtic Church was maintaining the pure apostolic faith in the British Isles and evangelizing there as well, the Waldensians were doing the same here in Northern Italy. The word Waldensian means people of the valleys. Originally though, in Italian, it was Valenses with a V. It was translated into the French as Vaudois. But in the 12th century, the V changed to a W, and one of the L's became a D from where we get the name Waldensian today. The Waldensians 
did not see themselves as reformers. They did not see themselves as needing to separate from Rome, for they said, we have never belonged to it. They said they are part of the apostolic faith and could trace their origins all the way back to the early centuries. In fact, when we look at the history of the Waldensians over several hundred years, if not millennia, we can see that they were around in the very early centuries, in the fourth century with Vigilantes. We can see them in the seventh, the eighth, the ninth century. Some people say that the first Waldensian was Peter Waldo in the 12th century, but this is not really accurate. Whilst it is true that Peter Waldo was a merchantman from Leon, he did sell all of his goods and commit his life to the preaching of the gospel. He was not the first Waldensian and their roots trace back much before him. In fact, one of the early names for the Waldensians was actually the word insabati showing clearly that the Waldensians were Sabbath keepers as they were named after the very day upon which they worshipped. As the Waldensians were coming up in the early centuries and the Roman Catholic Church was forming as well, both of them saw the heathens around them as a mission field. But whilst the Roman Catholic Church used the power of the law and the sword and political alliances to win people over, the Waldensians put their faith in the strength of God's Word. When you gaze on the magnificent mountains that surround us, you cannot but admit that God provided a safe retreat for His people. To the Waldensians was given the task of passing the light on to the Protestants of modern time and penetrating the darkness with true Bible doctrine. Indeed, they maintained longer than any group in the struggle to preserve the Bible and primitive Christianity. In upcoming episodes, we're gonna see the caves in which they hid and where they met for worship. We're gonna see the places where they trained their young people in how to study the Bible and in how to be missionaries. We're also gonna climb mountains and see the cliffs over which the Waldensians were hurled to their death in times of persecution. Truly, the Waldensians stand to us today as a group of people who believed in the Bible, as a group of people who believed in mission service. They are a key part of our spiritual lineage today. Faithful unto death, the Waldensians, the mountains of Europe, as they hid in those caves, as they taught the Bible to their children, as they went into the towns and villages, faithfully finding those who were open, giving them portions of precious hand-copied scripture, those Waldensians carried the light of truth through the dark ages. Praise God for that example, amen? I wish I could show you more videos. We, there's actually several of them in the Lineage series. You can look it up and watch it later. I'd love for you to find those and look at those. They're wonderful videos. But as we continue, that pale horse period doesn't last forever. There is another seal. It's not another horse, but there is another seal. And unfortunately, a lot of people come to the end of the horses and they assume that the prophecy is finished. It's almost finished, but there, these are the first four seals. There is a fifth one. Notice it says here in verse 9 and 10, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God for the, for the, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. God sees how bad the situation is. He hears the cries of his people, the ones who are, who are trying to stay faithful. How much longer, God? How much longer? Have you ever wondered, God, don't you see my pain and suffering? Don't you know that I'm hurting? Yes, he does, friends. I want to tell you tonight, God sees everything. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. He knows every tear you shed. Listen to these words of Psalm 56 and verse 8. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not written in your book? 
The truth is, friends, God keeps track of everything and He sees you. He knows every sleepless night. And He has a promise for you tonight. His kingdom is coming. Amen? He is going to make it right. And under that fifth seal, God starts to make everything right. People start to stand up for the truth of the Bible. Suddenly, the printing press is invented and now people can start to have access to copies of the Bible when Gutenberg invented the movable type. Brave people start to recapture the spirit of the early church. We're going to study more about this towards the end of our series. People like Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Tyndale. The embers of the Gospel are fanned into a flame that takes Europe by storm and it sets the stage for the sixth seal. Now we're going to go through this very quickly because our time is so limited, but I want you to see this. I'm going to move very fast. Are you guys ready? We're going to do this as fast as we can. So we've come now through the end of the Dark Ages and we've come to the 1700s. Pay attention very carefully. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. I looked when He opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like, like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its lake figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now pay attention to the events listed under the sixth seal. They're listed in a specific order. First is a great earthquake. Second, the sun goes dark and the moon turns red. And thirdly, the stars fall from heaven. Now that order is very important. And you find these same events in the same order mentioned several times in the Bible. They're also listed in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, in Luke 21, and in Joel chapter 2. And it's always in the same order every time. Why is that? Well, it's because that's exactly how it happened. I'm about to tell you something that our great-grandparents in the Christian faith knew. But this is something that many people have forgotten. In the year 1755, the city of Lisbon suddenly experienced one of the most devastating earthquakes, earthquakes in history. This was the Haiti or the Fukushima of its day. The city was utterly destroyed. The whole world was talking about it. It was felt in Africa. People felt it all over Europe. There was even a tidal wave in the Caribbean. It was a very, very big deal. And if you go to Lisbon today, you will still see remnants of churches that were destroyed in that 1755 earthquake. Now in 1780, in May of 1780, the sky suddenly went dark in the middle of the day in the northeastern part of the United States. Animals started coming home. And they say it was so dark, you couldn't see a sheet of paper at arm's length. To this day, we still don't fully know what caused it. But it was clearly, clearly something that many, many people wrote about and was a historical event. We do know what happened. Even the state assembly in Connecticut actually stopped conducting business and people started to shout, it's the end of the world! Why? Because they had read Bible prophecy and they were expecting it. A poet wrote these words speaking of this event. The low-hung Sky was black with ominous clouds. Birds ceased to sing and the barnyard fowls roosted. The cattle at the pasture bars lowed and looked homeward. Bats on leathern wings flitted abroad. The sound of labor died. Men prayed and women wept and all ears grew sharp to hear the doom blast of the trumpet shatter the black sky. Meanwhile, in the old state, in the old state house, dim as ghosts sat the lawgivers of Connecticut, trembling beneath their legislative robes. It is the Lord's great day. Let us adjourn, someone said. And then, as if with one accord, all eyes turned to Abraham Davenport. He rose, slowly cleaving with his steady voice the intolerable hush. This well may be the day of judgment which the world awaits. Be it so or not, I only know my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till I come, he said. So at the post where he hath set me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task, but ready when the Lord of harvest calls. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do His work. We will see to ours. Bring in the candles. Sir William Herschel, talking about that event, said the dark day in North America was one of those wonderful phenomenon which will always be read with interest, but which philosophy is at a loss to explain. And on that same time, just shortly after, Many news reports said that the moon looked red as blood. 
And so, friends, look at what it was said. Next, it was said that it seems to me that the next sign should be the falling of the stars. People knew the order in the Bible of these things. Earthquake. The day turns dark. The moon is turned to blood. And the next thing that is listed is the falling of the stars. So did that happen, friends? Did the stars start falling? The answer is yes. On November 13, 1833, the Leonoid meteor shower suddenly passed through our atmosphere. Now, the Leonoid shower happens every year, and if you go outside in November, oftentimes you can see it. You might see as many as 30 or 40 in an hour. But in 1833, the sky literally became unglued. There were almost 250,000 meteors every hour. That's 4,160-something a minute, 70 every second. Can you imagine? Have you ever seen a meteor? Can you imagine 70 a second? It was so bright that people started waking up in the middle of the night. I'm just going to skip through a couple of these. So I got some statements here. But I want to show you one statement that you will definitely recognize. This one from our president, 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. One night I was roused from my sleep by a rap at the door, and I heard the deacon's voice exclaiming, Arise, Abraham, the day of judgment has come. I sprang from my bed and rushed to the window and saw the stars falling in great showers. Abraham Lincoln. That happened, friends. It was a big event. You can look it up online. There's still articles about it. The impact was huge. Most importantly, though, the, imp the public began to think about Bible prophecy because they had seen these events fulfilled. They all happened in exactly the right place and exactly the places where people were studying Bible prophecy right on schedule. Everybody knew what was going on, and that means, folks, that seals 1 through 6 have already happened. It's already in the past. And that means that you and I are coming right up against number 7 right now. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Imagine that. Afraid of a lamb. They're not afraid of a lion. They're afraid of a lamb. That shows you how senseless it is to be lost when Jesus comes. Nobody's afraid of a lamb unless you've rejected him. You know, it really all does come to an end someday. And some people will never make up their minds. They keep putting it off until there's no more time to make things right with God. But then suddenly Jesus comes and they don't know him. And they're terrified. Friends, don't let that be you. Don't put off that decision until it's too late. What is the next event? What's the next thing you and I should expect in this prophecy, friends? What is it? What do you think it is? It's the second coming of Christ. Now let's skip to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now let me ask you, why would there be silence in heaven? It's because they're coming to earth to get his people. Amen? Heaven is empty. When Jesus comes, everybody joins Him. All the holy angels come because it's the biggest, most exciting event in the history of the universe. Nobody stays behind. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He shall sit upon the throne of His glory. Friends, it's really going to happen someday. It's really going to happen. Do you know why God gives us Bible prophecy? Some people think it's to scare us. But that's not the case at all. God gives us Bible prophecy to give us hope. I don't know if you've, here in Texas, you've probably not driven in a blizzard much, Pastor Ashwin, right? <laughs> this is a picture of a blizzard. Imagine this is rain, okay? We know the tropical storm is coming. There's going to be rain. And, and you know, sometimes when you're driving through a blizzard or you're driving through a rainstorm and, and the water is coming down or the snow is coming down so hard, it's hard to see the road, right? Sometimes you can hardly see the road right in front of you. You can't even tell where the road ends and the ditch begins. And so you drive slowly and your heart is pounding and your, your knuckles are white. You're, you're trying to stay in the lane. But then suddenly, you see it. 
you see the glow of your hometown just ahead. And you know that in just a couple of minutes, you're going to be home. You're going to be warm and safe with the people you love. If you take your kids on a long ride and they have a question, what's that question usually? Are we there yet? How much further is it, Dad? How much further, Mom? Friends, right now, you and I are the kids in the car. And God knows that we need to know how much longer. So He goes down through the quarters of time and He turns on a few lights so that we will know that we are almost there. That is why we have Bible prophecy. I hope that you've seen tonight a picture of the span of history and how close we are to the return of Jesus. And friends, my prayer tonight as we close is that you and I would be faithful. Faithful like the Waldensians. Willing to stand for truth though the heavens fall, though everybody else compromises. May we be like the faithful, pure Christians who stand for Jesus no matter what. Is that your desire tonight? If that's your desire, we just raise your hand. Amen.